Hello and welcome to Crazy Money, episode number three. Today we have for you a very interesting interview with a guy named Turney Duff. Turney, T-U-R-N-E-Y, by the way, had a great career on Wall Street until he didn't. And then he wrote a book about the experience. It's called The Buy Side, A Wall Street Trader's Tale of Spectacular Excess. I've read it. It's a great read. You should read it too. And his excess was spectacular. I mentioned this partially because in the initial interview, in the introduction in this interview that's about to follow, I murdered the name of the book. I said it was a Wall Street trader's tale of spectacular success. And while there was plenty of success, that's not really what the story is. Listen and you'll find out more about what it is. Turney was very gracious and didn't correct me. Thank you, Turney. You are quite the gentleman. Before I let you go into the interview, I want to mention that I do have a couple of shows coming up that you might be interested in seeing. I will be at the Best of Atlanta show at the Laughing Skull Lounge in Atlanta on February 28th and on March 10th. I have several other shows around around the Atlanta area that you can see on my website, paulollinger.com. And I'm very excited to say that I will be headlining Caroline's on Broadway in Times Square on March 13th. So go to the Caroline's website, get yourself some tickets. All right, enough rambling. Please enjoy my conversation with Turney Duff. It's funny you said like the money gave you the confidence to do drugs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like money was your armor, gave you some kind of a shield against ramifications. Yeah. I mean, I started confusing net worth with self-worth, right? My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the broadcast. I am here with Turney Duff, author, New York Times bestselling author, excuse me, of The Buy Side. A Wall Street Trader's Tale of Spectacular Success. It is a gripping read of a man's journey through money, addiction, and lots more. Turney, thank you for doing the podcast with me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, most important question of the interview, where does the name Turney come from? Turney is my great-great-grandmother's maiden name, and my great-great-grandfather was kicked out of Scotland for drinking, which is unheard of. <laughs> You've got to be a pretty pretty meaningful drinker to, I, yeah. to violate the rules of, I'm of not propriety sure how in it's Scotland. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's a feat. <laughs> Definitely a feat. Wow. Do you know what he did to... Uh... I don't. I do know that he passed away when he was 31. Oh, that's a drag. I believe it was alcohol related. But then life expectancy in Scotland 200 years ago was yeah. probably like 32 and a half. <laughs> right. So on a percentage basis, he almost got there. <laughs> yes. You describe yourself as uh, just an average kid from Kennebunk. Maine, where you finished fourth in the 1984 Kennebunk Junior High Science Fair. Yes. Was this the crushing defeat that, that started it all? <laughs> defeat? What are you talking about? That was a victory. Dude, you didn't even show. <laughs> I came in fourth. I think, I think that qualifies. What was the project? For the science fair, it was, sadly, I do believe it was the volcano. 
<laughs> with the baking powder and yes. vinegar. It's not that that's terrible. It's just so predictable. Yeah. 1984, that's, what do you want? <laughs> the technology wasn't as good. <laughs> the volcano's a solid one. It's a classic anyway. Who won? Do you remember who won? I, no, I don't. You don't remember why you got beat? I don't. All right. So what, when you were, when you're, after you got through your science phase, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, uh, early on, I originally thought I wanted to be a chef. And, you know, shortly after that, I saw a movie and I decided I wanted to be a con man. A con man. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, that's how you ended up and, on Wall Street. Well, my first, my first heist was I blackmailed a, a girl named Kelly in sixth grade. I wrote her a note and said... If she didn't leave a dollar in the book Backboard Magic on page 47, mm-hmm. that I was going to tell everyone at recess who who her boyfriend was. Mm-hmm. And so she told the teacher, and I got in trouble. So I was like, all right, I'm done being a con man. I think blackmail is a federal offense. <laughs> and it's the, that, that, it would, that, that plays very closely to some sexual harassment in yeah. today's world. Probably not a good resume builder. Yeah, And then... Yet. Uh, in high school, I thought I wanted to go into hotel management. I was going to go right. to UNLV. Uh-huh. And then... Jerry Tarkanian, baby. Yeah. And uh, for whatever reason, I decided to to be a journalism major, and I went to Ohio University. Is that what took you to Ohio, was journalism? Yes, and partly I wanted to be able to see the Cleveland Browns play every Sunday. Okay. And living up in Maine, I was like, well, i got to go to school in Ohio. And so... Right. The Cleveland Browns. I was born in Cleveland. Okay. That the Cleveland Browns informed your college yeah, decision, choice, your college yeah. choice. Wow, that's well, if you remember in the eighties, like yes, that was our decade. Mm-hmm. I mean, we never made it to the Super Bowl, but like, was that Jim Plunkett? Was that or was that the Bengals? No, we were we were Bernie Kosar. Oh, Bernie, right, right. So you go to college to both study major and to uh, study journalism and to um, to to see the Cleveland Browns play. Did you mention that in your application essay? I really wanted because of your stellar journalism program. And so I can see the Browns play. I didn't know. I didn't bring it up. It was kind of like a, a perk. So what what drew you to journalism? I always loved writing. I loved mm-hmm. being creative. Right. And so like, you know, in high school, I was convincing my Spanish teacher to allow me to do a Brady Bunch skit in Spanish, right? Uh-huh. And I'd film it and, you know, everything. Uh, I convinced my high school English teacher, instead of writing a term paper, to to learn how to write a screenplay, and and you know submit that. And mm-hmm. so I knew that I I liked writing, and so it just seemed sort of like a natural fit. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing was when I graduated from college, I was like, if I write one more sentence, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, screw that. I ended up, you know, back at my parents' house in Maine, you know, house heated by a wood stove. Right. Very simple life. And I'm sitting on the couch saying to myself, I'm like, I, I need a job. And right. so yeah. I packed up the U-Haul, had a giant lobster on us at American Moves from Maine. Yep. I drive to Manhattan. I'm wearing LL Bean boots and a J. Crew jacket. And I'm <laughs> right. like, let's do this. It's a good look. And I ended up calling my uncle when I had, because when I, I struggled trying to find a job. Right. And I called my uncle and I didn't prepare what I was going to say. And you know, after all of my ums, ahs, and dead silence, he said, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. He calls me back. He's like, all right, you got 10 interviews this week. I was like, for what? Right. He's like, oh, just say you want to get into sales. I was like, I knew he worked on Wall Street, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And on, on my first interview, I ended up at, uh, down Seven World Trade Center at Lehman Brothers, and I'm wearing a Filene's untailored you know, suit. I got a stack of resumes, and I walk in there, and 
I had no idea what they were doing, but I just said, I want in. What, what did you think Wall Street did before you started? Before you got down there in your filings basement suit? I mean, I had, I had, I was terrified because I pretty much knew I didn't really fit in or I wasn't qualified. I wasn't a very good student. Mm-hmm. So I thought Wall Street was super smart people who like analyzed companies and you know, I, I guess my perspective was people were analysts, like, and they told you whether you should buy or sell a stock. Right. Like, like they were, they were analysts for retail clients, but not, you had no idea the billions that traded hands. I had no idea about that. Hour. And, and I didn't know about the social element of wheeling and dealing and, and being a trader and, and a salesman where you don't need to analyze anything. Right. You're just transacting the whole right. time. Were your parents in the financial world at all, or what, what kind of work did they do? No, uh, my dad was a chemical engineer, and my mom was a, like a stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. I have three older sisters. I grew up, the most my father ever made was $150,000. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was more money than you could ever make in the world. Not bad change in the 80s. No, it was it was great. Yeah. You know, he 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 sent four kids to college. Right. He lived in a decent house. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was okay. Mm-hmm. And so, one of my early Wall Street interviews, you know, some some like hotshot kid was like, "Well, how much do you think? You know, what do you want to make?" And I, and I threw out the number one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Right. He laughed at me. <laughs> he, he goes, "I made that last month." That's I was just hilarious. Like, what? Like, I didn't get it. You know. Yeah. And so. There was a big difference between, you know, Maine rich and New York rich. So you're going to, what year is this you're going to for these I, interviews on Wall I Street? Moved, I moved to city in 94. Okay, so Wall Street, the movie came out in what, 87? Something like so, that. Yeah. So yeah. so a lot of people at that time are moving to Wall Street to be the next Bud Fox, to be the next Gordon Gecko, or to live the Tom Wolf bonfire, the vanity right. lifestyle. But you were oblivious to all that. So oblivious. Yeah. So my buddy, uh, my roommate at the time... One time we're sitting down and we're hanging out and, and he goes, hey man, he's like, you remember Dave from, from BC? Because my, my roommate went to Boston College. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. He's like, he got an interview at Goldman Sachs. Right. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, like fancy department store? I'm like, <laughs> am I supposed to be impressed? Like, I didn't know what Goldman Sachs was. Right. And meanwhile, I, I was interviewing there like two days later. Yeah. You know. I That's how I felt my first week at business school. I had no idea what... I, I didn't know what consultants did. I didn't know what banks were what banks. And I, I couldn't tell you that, you know, like Fleet Bank in Boston was was less prestigious than Goldman Sachs. It never even occurred to me. Right. They're both right. banks. I mean, that's where you get your auto loans, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no idea. Attorney going to sign up for some uh, some credit cards at Goldman Sachs. Okay, so you get, so you're down there, you're interviewing in your filings basement suit. Yeah. And you don't know what you're doing. How do you get hired? For me, my uncle set up 10 interviews, so they were all friendly, mm-hmm. right? The questions weren't hard, and it was more kind of like getting to know you. And I was 0 for 9, uh, and on my 10th one, you know, I was just at the point where the manager's basically saying, you're like, well, give me your resume, and, you know, keep in touch. Sure. And all of a sudden, this woman comes down from the 37th floor, and she works in a different department called Private Wealth Management. Mm-hmm. And she'd gotten a call from my uncle, and she's like, why don't you, you know, come up to my floor? And so I, I started interviewing with this woman, and it turned out that she had missed the previous night's 
episode of Melrose Place. <laughs> That's awesome. And and you know we didn't have DVR or anything like that. <laughs> right. And she she sort of mentioned it, and I was like, well, I'm like. Sydney taped Billy having sex with a hooker and she showed it to Samantha mm-hmm. and she's like get out of here <laughs> we ended up having this great conversation right and I was hired shortly thereafter that Michael is so smug <laughs> <laughs> so Melrose Place is what got you a job yeah. at which firm was Morgan that? Stanley at Morgan Stanley <laughs> see kids you're doing it all wrong <laughs> to quit studying watch more television yes bone up on your pop culture you're in at the biggest banks there is some truth to that, though, because I talk to young kids entering the workforce all right. the time now, yeah. and and I very often say, I'm like, you need to be interesting and likable outside of work. Everyone can do the job, right? but they're picking someone they want to sit next to for 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So it might not be Melrose Place, right? but you, you need interests and hobbies and depth outside of your, your business. Read, read up on how... Uh... Lyndon Johnson made up interests in baseball to woo fellow senators when he was a junior senator to get it placed on the, the most prestigious committees. <laughs> what a bullshit artist. But it works. Right. So you get hired. You're, you're work- so now you're on the desk at Wall Street and you don't know what's going on. Right. So during the day, I'm out connected, out degreed, out experienced. I don't mm-hmm. have a chance. I'm B student Ohio University with journalism degree, mm-hmm. 970 SAT score. <laughs> I'm sitting next to a guy from Harvard. You didn't crack four digits, man. <laughs> no. Come on. I take a little pride in that now. <laughs> so I'm sitting next to a guy from Harvard and a woman from Duke during the day, and I cannot move the needle at right. all. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I could have stayed up all night. You know, st- I still wouldn't have been able to beat these two. But what I figured out was at happy hour, I can crush the guy from Harvard. I could crush the woman from Duke. Like mm-hmm. they didn't stand a chance. So right. when the office lights went out and the city lights came on, that was my time to shine. That's how I kind of progressed my career. What form did that take? I was the guy, you know. In what way? I could I could get you into, you know, whatever club you wanted. I could get you a reservation. Mm-hmm. I knew where the party was. I knew where like the after hours was. Like, you know, it took some time. You taught these uptight bankers how to have fun. Or showed them... Yeah, they wanted... So normally, like... And, and, and things have changed on Wall Street, right? But mm-hmm. a normal business model would be take your clients out, grab a couple of hot females from the desk, like mm-hmm. assistants, and let's show our client a good time, right? Right. Not that I was a hot female, but I was fun. You're pretty hot. So... You're pre- I mean, you know, you're not bad. They would. They would want... You know, they would want Turney to be out with us to show everyone a good time. Right. And that worked. So so you distinguish yourself not through your technical skills or your book smarts, but just because you were fun to be around. Exactly. And you knew. So where does that take you? How does that... So you still have to be able to do the job, though. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But in sales and trading, it's not... You know, it's it's a lot of relationships. So it's not... I didn't need to have an analytical mind or... I, I had to be able to do the job, correct. So so this isn't a technically a business show, but for just a quick primer, what does sales and trading mean? Um so on Wall Street, when you when you want to either buy or sell a stock, mm-hmm. you need to call a broker and they'll execute it for you. So right. if you're a broker, you're on the sell side mm-hmm. and you want your clients to call you when you have, let's say, a million share order, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a number of ways you can do that. You have you have great research, right? Mm-hmm. Or you have a you have a conference that 
your client really wants to go to and get you know first rate attention, or perhaps you you just took the trader to Vegas, <laughs> for example, and you have some photos of him. <laughs> you know, so entertaining was a big part of. And you started on the sell side. Though, I was five correct? years at Morgan Stanley, and then I jumped to a hedge fund called the Gallian Group, mm-hmm. and I was considered the buy side. And that doesn't mean I only bought, but it just meant I was a client of Wall Street. And you're, so you are now a decision maker. Money flows in the direction you choose for it to flow. Right. How does your life change at that point? It, I mean, it's the pecking order, at least back then in Manhattan nightlife, was pretty much celebrities, models, socialites, <laughs> and hedge fund guys. Right. You know? Like, I could do anything I want. Wow. Like, when I was 31 years old, I was after Galleon, I started a hedge fund called Argus, right? And not even counting the money I was making, the commissions I was paying people on the street was $50 million. So I had $50 million to give out to anyone on Wall Street. So I was really popular. People answer your calls. Yes. And they laughed at my jokes. <laughs> anything I wanted. Right. Anything. Yeah. And how does that um, how does that affect your mentality over time? You start to believe, you know, mm-hmm. I for a long time I knew I was a fraud and that slowly sort of went away because you've so many people telling you you're a great trader, or, oh my God, you're so much fun. Like whatever it is, you start to believe it a little bit. And the other thing that I think, when I look back, is just ridiculous. I literally thought, okay, you know, I'm going to be making at least a million dollars a year for the next 25, 30 years, right? I did it at 32. Like, sure, why wouldn't you be able to do it? It's going to keep happening, mm-hmm. right? And that that was just so misguided. So why didn't it keep happening? I mean, there's there's several factors, but you know, I. <laughs> I ended up in rehab twice, uh-huh. um, so that that sort of you know took my career in a different direction. Yeah, and you know the markets changed and sure. the job changed, and every time you find easy money in any any industry, it's going to go away in three to five years because the easy easy money gets made, everyone rushes to do it, or people figure out, you know, why why am I paying these people so much money? When, you know, I can cut my costs and I'll keep the money. You know what I mean? Right. So how did the drugs start? So I was always sort of a partier, like mm-hmm. a drinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, smoked weed. Sure. You know, dabbled a little bit. Ecstasy, you know, here and there. And I was out one night and I was offered cocaine. And so the guy handed it to me and, and I didn't know what to do with it. So I slid it in my pocket. Mm-hmm. And eventually he was like, you know, you're going you're gonna to hit that or what? And so right. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I run in the bathroom and I'm staring at this bag of cocaine. And I was like, do, do I do the whole thing? Like, should, should I pour in the toilet? I didn't know, right? Right. Because as a child of the 80s, my, my only what reference What would Nancy Reagan was, think? <laughs> and, well, and Len Bias. Right, yeah. Know, he died yeah, in 1986. Right. And, and the story was he did it once and he died. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you do cocaine, you die. Mm-hmm. And so- I didn't do it that night, and I, I went back out to the bar, and and that was a coworker, or that was a it was one of the brokers, one of the, entertaining me, right? So he eventually asked for it back, and I handed it back, and mm-hmm. and then fast forward six months, 
I, I went from Galleon to Argus. I moved from uptown to downtown. My bank account changed. The people I was running around with changed. And it just, it didn't look as menacing. Your bank account changed, meaning you had a lot more money. I had a lot more money. Mm-hmm. My job title changed. Everything had changed. You're how old now at this point and how much uh, are you making? It was like 31, 32. And you're making how much money at that um, point? I was just shy of a million that year. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, I uh, went higher. But um, so I was like, why not? You know, so I went to the bathroom, did one little key bump, and I was just like, wow. Yeah. Like, this is the greatest thing <laughs> I have ever done, right? Yeah. And I tell people, like, I love cocaine. Mm-hmm. Like, Leonardo DiCaprio loves that chick in Titanic. <laughs> like, that's how much I loved it. Right. And I was walking back to the bar, and I was like, this is going to be a problem. Like, it is. You knew right away. Because it was too good. I felt too, powerful. too good. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. Yeah. Because I wanted to feel like that all the time. Right. So I knew it was a problem. I've never done cocaine because I can't control myself around a basket of tortilla chips. <laughs> so I could, until I can pull that together, maybe, yeah. maybe use that as the minor leagues. Although I think, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm going to guess your window's closed. I know I don't I'm not I've gotten this far without it I think it's probably a pretty good idea if you make it to 50 without doing coke yeah just, I think I'm gonna start smoking I'm gonna start smoking and doing coke oh also honey I'm gonna start a podcast that's like those are like three things your wife doesn't want to hear when you turn 50 I'm gonna start smoking oh, I, the, he said he's gonna do drugs but the, the bigger problem is he wants to do a podcast um so you felt Bullet, it's funny you said like the money gave you the confidence to do drugs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so like you, like money was your armor, gave you some kind of a shield against ramifications. Yeah. I mean, I started confusing net worth with self worth, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm making a shitload of money. Right. You know, people are treating me a certain way. Yeah. It's like it just felt part part of the culture, like I was supposed to do. And look, there are plenty of people who who made a ton of money who don't pick up cocaine. So right. I'm not blaming money, but for me, it was this giant cocktail. And so in the book, which I highly recommend all of you go buy and read, you go into great detail of the downward spiral from there. What are, what are some of your favorite highlights from that time? Um, this isn't a highlight, but it goes along with... So there are two, there are two themes that have run like for my entire life. One is... Just want to be happy, right? Mm-hmm. And two is if then. So uh, when I was making $22,000 a year, I was saying to people, if I could just make $50,000 a year, then I'd be happy. Sure. If I could get that girl, then I'd be happy. If I get that promotion, then I'd have a career. Well, so in 2003, 2004, right after bonus time, I'm in my 2,700 square foot apartment in Tribeca by myself, Christmas Eve, and I'm calling Chase 1-800 number. You know, I punch in my account number and the automated voice is like, your balance is one million eight hundred thousand six hundred. <laughs> repeat. Your balance is one million eight hundred thousand. Yes. Your balance is. Hearing the balance was making me feel better, just for a moment. Mm-hmm. But so oh, oh holy night, here's right. your balance. And so so the thing is, you know, when I made when I made two million dollars, I was saying, if I could just make three million dollars, then everything would be okay. 
I don't know if that was the beginning of the end. Maybe maybe the beginning of the end was when I started doing cocaine. But you know, th- there's funny stories where you know I bought eight front row Yankee tickets for the sole purpose that me and my friend could go outside the stadium three times to smoke cigarettes because they don't have a re-entry. <laughs> so at two thousand, I was smoking two thousand dollars cigarettes. <laughs> like another, I mean, this is stupid. <laughs> That's um, fantastic. It's yeah. a, that's a brilliant life hack right there. Yes. When you have $2 million in your bank account, you can do that. And no kids or a right. wife, you can do that. I mean, but if I was smart, I would have bought two front row tickets, mm-hmm. right? And, and six. Six in the bleachers. Right. <laughs> right. But it was it was a World Series game, too. And, you know, I mean, this is a stupid story, but I, one thing I used to do is I'd roll up to the bar. The money and cocaine just, you know, sort of made me feel like invincible, whatever. Um, and I always did things for the story, right? So one thing I used to do, I, I call it was called the Babe Ruth. And so I would do a bunch of coke in the bathroom, go to the bar, make sure like people are around, whether I knew them well or not, get a tequila, and then I'd pull out like 100 milligrams of Viagra. And I'd show everyone, mm-hmm. like I'm about to do a magic trick. And, and you know, people were kind of looking at me like, what the... F-? And so then I'd pop the Viagra, chug the tequila, and then do the Babe Ruth where I was like, you know, swinging my bat and then pointing my my bat to the, you know, the, to the bleachers. You're calling it. Calling my shot, right? And then I would just go off and people wouldn't see me for the rest of the night. And, you know, that's when I kind of discovered how awesome hookers are because, you know, I'd already taken the Viagra. <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, right. Like, you're I mean, kind of I, committed at that point. If I strike out, like, <laughs> I, I've... I am committed at that point. The babe did strike out a lot. Yes. Uh, although, tr- besides the obvious physical need, what need were hookers playing in your life at that point? Um, you know, Charlie Sheen said it best. And, you know, he said, you don't pay them to come. You pay them to leave. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to get the wrong impression. I, I don't call escorts anymore. But when I was out of my mind, it was easier. It was simpler. There was no, like, when are you going to leave? Mm-hmm. When Like, it was... It was transactional. Right. And there was, obviously, there was a lot that I was missing, whether it was intimacy or like a real relationship, but there was a understanding and a give and take. And What did a prostitute cost in, in, in uh, 2003 in New York um, City? You know, you were looking at probably like, you know, at least in the pools that I was swimming in, mm-hmm. like, you know, four to 600 for the first hour. Mm-hmm. And then- Depending on is there a declining marginal rate after that? Can you can you yeah, average out the cost? And you can negotiate. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how it works. Like, do you get but, a volume discount for hookers or blow? I mean, like, can you negotiate a a bulk rate oh, with yeah, your dealer? Totally, totally. But the thing is, and people don't. I mean, people probably think I'm lying. When you were doing a lot of cocaine, there were times where they were coming to like there was no sex, right? And people don't understand that. What was what was it? They'd come over, you start partying, you start ripping a few lines. Cocaine makes it a lot harder for you to have sex Mm -hmm. without the Viagra. Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, like two hours are up, you know, $800. Right. Like, well, am I going to extend this or am I just going to call it a night? Yeah. So, I mean, did you, do you just want somebody to hang out with sort of part of the time? Yeah. Yeah. You've done a lot of, you've had a lot of years to think back on this. What do you, what, what were you trying to, what hole were you trying to fill with the money and the blow and the hookers? I think, I mean, it's it's the same hole, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm sober now nine nine plus years, mm-hmm. and 
nothing ever filled that hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, money, sex, drugs, power, pornography, like you name it. Nothing ever did. Uh, and it wasn't until I started to get sober and I started to write that there was actually, it was more spiritual, if, if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. It was more purpose. The writing is more spiritual? Yeah, and just the with sobriety, like I was doing a lot of work on myself, whether it's therapy or 12-step meeting, and there was something about the emotional connection and the honesty and the spiritual side of it that it did help start to fill the hole. Right. Let's go back to if then. Yeah. I think if then is a very common human trait and probably being exacerbated by social media these days when the distance between your peers is shrunk because I can see somebody partying on a yacht in the Caribbean who I might be able to rationalize is has a thousand times more money than I do, but I still feel like I deserve what they have. Right. How did if then lead you astray? Because it never worked, right? So no matter what my situation was, there was always another buoy and it was always like, you know, well, if I got that, then this, I would, the idea is if I get X, then I'll feel Y, right? But when you got to X, it was like a moment of euphoria and then totally dissipated. There's elements of that that are good, right? Because people are like, Turner, you're so driven, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, driven by discontent. Like, <laughs> I'm never happy. But, it, you know, I, I chased, right? And, you know, there's something that's called uh, affect forecasting. And as humans, we are the worst species of, of predicting future emotions, right? So whatever you think is worst case scenario and like basically it's over. And and look, I'm not talking about, you know, family members getting sick or right. When I thought when I thought leaving Wall Street and losing my house was literally worst case scenario, I can now look back and say those were gifts. Like so some of the things that I thought were worst case scenario are some of my biggest gifts and some of the things that I thought were best case scenario have like brought me down. So when you're you're sitting there, you you know you have a problem when you're when you're having one man benders in hotel rooms right. when your uh, wife and daughter are at home in your house that you're having trouble paying for. The stress must have been enormous. Were you in conflict all the time? Did you know you were out of control? Like how did that feel? It. It was very, very stressful, and it was, you know, for whatever reason, you know, fortunate, charmed, lucky, always managed. Like, shit always eventually kind of worked out for me. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of holding on to that. Like, you know, there's some magic coming my way. Because you've gonna... always gotten away with it up to this point. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a decline, right? <laughs> Things right. were getting worse, and... Kind of why my, my book lined up um, was I was crashing the same time as the financial collapse. Right. Right. So, you know. I'm, morality parallel yeah, structure yeah, of, the, exactly. of the story. So I was, I was hoping that somehow things were going to right themselves. But deep down I knew. And so, so at that moment when you're, 
you're you're hitting bottom again and you're going into rehab what are you thinking about the logistics of your life at that point like are you thinking about money at all are you thinking about well how the fuck am i going to pay my rent when i get out of here so the first time i went to rehab was in 2006 Mm -hmm. and i came back and i went back to wall street because i had a mortgage to pay right i had a lifestyle to keep like you know i was going to eventually send my daughter she was one at the time you know to whatever private school or, or whatever it was so I went back to Wall Street out of necessity. Right. And second time I, you know, came back and I kind of knew I shouldn't go back to Wall Street. And then this 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 one not even interview, I was trying to sell them this hedge fund some research. Right. And it turned into an interview. And next thing I know, like I'm being called back in for the seven figure job. Right. And I'm like thinking about like seven figures solves a lot of problems but creates others right <laughs> i knew in my heart i just knew it wasn't right and at that point you're divorced already well we were never officially married but oh, okay. she's my girlfriend had left me my daughter was four at this time mm-hmm. i'm living in a six thousand square foot house that's going into foreclosure right by myself and i don't know i it was like an outer body experience but i just knew it wasn't right and I knew I'd be going back to Wall Street just for the money. Call it a leap or whatever. I was 40 years old at the time. And I was just like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. So how do you, what's your plan at that point? Like, how do you, like, I can, I can understand feeling that in your gut you're making the right decision. But then how do you work out, well, okay, I know that's not it. But what is? And how do you make a living after that? You know, I, I trusted my gut, which... Early on in my trading career, like my gut was, you know, definitely helpful. Right. And I lost my way along the, you know, along the way. I I had, I had faith. I don't, it's hard to explain. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for a long time, I, I knew I had to stay sober. Like that was first and foremost, but I'm so quick to discount my own resiliency and I'm, and I'm so quick to discount my ability to figure shit out. Right. Right. So very often I live in the wreckage of of my future. Right. And I'm, and I'm what, do you, what do you mean by that? The wreckage of my future is all of the shit that I project and all of the worst case scenarios mm-hmm. and everything that's going to go wrong right. that hasn't gone wrong yet. <laughs> and I sit there in my head and I worry about it. Yeah. And so I, I had to get out of that headspace and I just had to say, I'm going to stay sober and I'm going to be the best dad that I can be. Mm-hmm. And, and I like writing, so I'm going to try to write. I wasn't at a point yet where I was I was about to be homeless. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't far, but I was. I knew like I had a roof over my head at least until the police pulled me out of the house. Right? <laughs> they had a lot of other people to pull out of houses right, back then. Right? Yeah. And and yeah. So I I was just kind of taking a leap of faith because I'd made so many mistakes leading up to that. Yeah. It's like, well, let's make a new mistake. Sure. An original one. Right, right. And so where what was your first job after that? I tried selling research. I hated it. Uh, and the research wasn't, it was like this junior varsity product on Wall Street. And it was humiliating. I was going back to like former colleagues, you know, begging them to take this like low level research. And, you know, some people were nice. A lot of people kind of, you know, enjoyed <laughs> seeing how low oh. I'd fall. Um, and how did that make you feel when you saw them looking at you with condescension? 
you know what? For the first six months, and I don't know if it, it had to like coincide with my sobriety, mm-hmm. but I was just like, fine. Right. Like, yeah. Let's see how much I can take. Yeah. Like, so I, I was comfortable being the punching bag or the mm-hmm. welcome mat. I was mm-hmm. just like, whatever. Right. Um, There's more important things. Right. But that allowed me to write on the side. Okay. And writing did it for me. How long did it take you to write your, to get a deal, to get a book deal? So, and I've heard this said before a couple different ways, but some people say you have to write a book before you can publish your first book. So I wrote a really shitty novel in the summer of 2010. And as soon as I typed the end, I was like, okay, where's, where's my agent? Right. Let's publish this. Yes. I didn't know how bad it was Uh and I didn't know how (laughs) difficult the, you know, the process was. Yes. So I was rewriting, editing, working on it, trying to like, you know, set myself up. And I decided one night, you know, this is like six months after I wrote it, spring of 2011, I was like, I got to do something else. And so I wrote one night for six hours straight and it, it ended up being the buy side. But it, mm-hmm. I saw something very compelling with my career lined up with, you know, the markets over those 15 years. Right. Because there were so many similarities. Sure. And I wrote something, emailed it to a few friends, started getting passed around. Right. I got a call from a literary agent like a week later. Wow. She said, would you be interested in turning this into a book proposal? And I was like, yeah, definitely. And she's like, all right, why don't we meet in in two weeks and, you know, we'll talk about it. I go, Mm -hmm. how about this? I go, why don't I write a book proposal, send it to you, and we'll still meet in two weeks. She's like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Like Thinking you'd never do it. So we hang up. Call my, my my sober friend Brian. I'm like, what's a book proposal? <laughs> and he's like, you told me. Yeah. I, I did one in 10 days, sent it to her, uh-huh. and she wanted to sign me like, as soon as I walked in. That's awesome. How long did it take you to, to make money as a writer? Like, You got an advance on that book. Wait, I'm, I'm supposed to make money? <laughs> I, I was very fortunate with my first book deal. Yeah. And it wasn't Wall Street money, but right. it was... But it's... Put a roof over your head, money. It was great. Yeah. It was great. You know, so my first book, I I, I got a, a paid a, like a good chunk. What was difficult was two years after the book was published. Right. You know, what, where's, so, what's so, next? Right. So I started ghostwriting. Mm-hmm. I was writing articles for CNBC mm-hmm. and here and there, like I wrote for Vice and, you know, just different periodicals. But that's like a couple hundred bucks here and there. Right. But like a, like a good one like was Vice, right? Right. They would pay me a dollar a word. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait, you're going to pay me a dollar a word? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, Here's and you don't care how many 5, words? 5,000 words. <laughs> I ended up like delivering like 2,200 words. Sure. They published it. Yeah. But I was like, what? I'm not going to be right. It was a very, 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 very <laughs> cold night. <laughs> wait a minute. Are you telling me you sacrificed your art for the almighty yes. dollar? <laughs> I mean, times are tough. Stephen there King was, says you should cut all the that's out of your writing. You you're should. like, that's a dollar per right. that. Fuck that. <laughs> there, there was a moment, though, <laughs> in 2011, before I got my book deal, where I had to choose between toilet paper and cigarettes. Ooh. I, I was down to like my last few dollars money was coming mm-hmm. but i had to choose between so what i chose was cigarettes and then public 
toilets. Can you buy Lucy toilet paper on the streets in Manhattan? Oh, well, you can steal <laughs> toilet paper. <laughs> but it's, you, where's a good place to steal toilet it's paper? It's easier from? in the winter. You know, whatever. Taco Bell, Starbucks. But you want Why a big, is it easier in the winter? Because you have like a big coat. Oh. <laughs> you know, in the summer you're wearing shorts and like. Right. There's no real good place to it's hide. It's harder to stash a, a roll of Charmin. Right. Cigarettes or toilet paper, the ultimate purchase decision. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So what's how do you make a living today? What's your what's what's your livelihood look like? Um, you know, I've I feel fortunate and blessed and super, super grateful. I'm not living any extravagant lifestyle, but sure. I've been able to, you know, go write two books. I'm working on my next book. I've been writing, you know, these sort of uh freelance jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get paid to speak, you know, which is which is fun and, and great money, right? And I and I've kind of been piecing it together. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I'm I'm working with a friend and you know doing some fun creative projects. I just recently signed with a manager at a place called Management Three Hundred and Sixty. So I'm 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 kind of doing some work or trying to get work done screenwriting wise. I did two TV shows. I behind the camera I worked for a show called Billions on sure. Showtime. It's a great show. Um, in front of the camera. I did three seasons for the Filthy Rich Guide that was on CNBC. It was definitely different than Wall Street and knowing where the next check was coming from. Right. But quality of life is phenomenal. Do you ever wonder if you never took that first bump of cocaine, what you'd be doing right now? Well, I believe that I probably would be worse off. In what way? So cocaine brought me to my knees, and it brought me to my knees quick. Mm-hmm. I took the express train, right? It, <laughs> it took me a while to get right. sober. Yeah. You know, there was probably three years of darkness. Sure. But without the cocaine, I might still be out there drinking, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't going great, mm-hmm. you know? it. But I always managed to get to work. Or, right. you know, and I lived in the city, so I didn't have to drink and drive. But it was heading in the wrong direction. Right. So I think it would have been a longer, slower death, mm-hmm. and not enough bad shit was happening where I had to go to rehab immediately. So I think cocaine ended up being catalyzed your sobriety. Yeah. Thinking about your story and you say, okay, so you don't do the blow, you don't, you don't go down as fast, but maybe you just sit there and suffer on suffer on wall street i mean that sounds like an oxymoron but you're doing something your your heart's not in because you're making a lot of money right it's like that's a hard treadmill to get off of of your own volition yeah well that's 100 percent. like i don't know if i would have been able to leave on my own mm-hmm. right and you know people talk about wealth addiction mm-hmm. um you know for me that was definitely part of it like i didn't obsess about the numbers in the bank but i obsessed about what those numbers allowed me to do so you know, like I had Naughty by Nature perform at my 34th birthday party, <laughs> right. right? Just because. Sure. Right. And I was yeah. addicted to being able to do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I never cared about how much was in the bank because I assumed it was never going to end. Who were you trying to impress? I think myself. Mm-hmm. Like I was my own biggest competition. Yeah. You know, of course, there were people who were doing bigger and better things than me. But I was really, I, I think I was really trying to impress myself. And today, who are you trying to impress? I'm really not trying to impress anyone, right. you know? So back in 2012, I just got a big book deal from Random House. Mm-hmm. I was seeing my daughter or talking to her every single day. I got through family court. Me and my ex were getting along great. Mm-hmm. I'd made all of my amends. Mm-hmm. 
And I was sitting there on the couch and like, I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm an asshole. Like, something is wrong with me. So I went to the computer and I Googled the pursuit of happiness because mm-hmm. I wanted to know what it meant in 1776. What I discovered was happiness meant honor, integrity, how you live your life. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it doesn't mean... But I have a Porsche. <laughs> right, right. Fancy cars and great vacations. Right. And I always thought happiness and pleasure were synonymous. Right. So on that day, I said, you know what? Fuck happiness. I don't even want to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of made serenity my goal. Right. And ironically, since that day, I've never been happier, right? Sure. And so... I'm not trying to impress anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be the best person I can. Right. And it's it's progress, not perfection. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to earn that father of the year mug that mm-hmm. my daughter gives me every year. Right. right. Yeah. I'm trying to be a good friend. If someone says, hey, I need you to help me move on Thursday. If I say yes, I'm there. Yeah. You know? And so I just try to really keep my word yeah. and be honest and be a good friend, be a good brother, be a, and and that that really keeps me content. Yeah. Do you worry about money these days? There's financial insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um my daughter's in 8th grade. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she says she wants to go to Duke, right? <laughs> Study like, hard, sweetie. Right. Um see if coach K can put in a word. <laughs> yeah. For her. It does exist, but I don't obsess about it. Yeah. I'm not I'm not chasing the money. Right. I need money. And I'd like more of it. Right. But I'm not sacrificing important shit to get it. That's not the goal. Right. I want to just ask a couple things about Galleon, if that's okay. Yeah. So the... the, w- w- the you know first... I made a rap song. <laughs> I heard I read put about that. Put your money on Galleon. Yeah. Do you have a link to that? Is it on web- online somewhere? It's, I put it up on my website. Okay, well, tell me about the rap song you wrote about Galleon. So Galleon was the hedge fund that you were, the first hedge fund you worked for on the yes. buy side. And there is my former boss, Raj Rajaratnam, mm-hmm. is currently serving 11 years for insider trading. Right. We threw a party for Wall Street. And typically it's the other way around. The sell side entertains the buy side. Right. We're like, we're so bad that we're going to, we're entertaining Wall Street. Yeah. So it, it was like, hot ticket you wanted to get on this on this list yeah. right and so we hired this company East superstar they you know they got diana ross for us and mm-hmm. whatnot and and one of the partners was this guy named jesse and he said hey i i got commissioned to write a rap song about your hedge fund right. you know do you want to meet me at the studio and i was like yeah that's so funny yeah so but my rap experience was me and my best friend nathaniel would go to his barn in Kenny Monk, Maine, yeah, and rap to an audience of zero, mm-hmm. and you know, so I had no business going to the studio and you know and laying, laying this laying down, down tracks. Um, so I, so I just I, I I go to Jesse James. I'm like, people call us the Good Chip, so I was thinking maybe we sample Good Chip Lollipop by Shirley Temple. He's like, let's do it, and so he just started writing, and then I got in the booth and I I I jumped on his last line, but I was like. Hit me, bid me, I need liquidity. Stop me on five, stupidity. I'm a galleon where it all connects. Trade in healthcare and biotech. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. That uh, holds up. <laughs> holds up through down, up and down markets. Yes. Uh, we're going to try to find a link to that so we can put this on the on the podcast page. Galleon, as, uh, it, I didn't put two and two together when I first saw that you worked at Galleon, but yeah, so Galleon is most well known for the fall of its founder 
being busted in a very high profile insider trading case. You had left long before that went down. Yes. And the statute of limitations is closed. And so if the New York Southern District AG is listening, there's no case here. <laughs> Chuck Rhodes, I believe, is his name. Yes. But what, what, what I found so interesting about that isn't that Raj, a guy who runs a hedge fund, who I'll just assume is a gambler by nature and is, and is doing something to always have the edge over the other guy. But what blew me away is that the, his sources of information, let me just read one guy's resume. He was getting inside information from um, a guy named Rajat Gupta. Who Check out this resume. He was a managing director at McKinsey making over $6 million a year, a board member at Goldman Sachs, Procter & Gamble, and American Airlines, and the University of Chicago, and he's an advisor to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. What the hell is this guy trying to make an extra couple million bucks for? He's, I mean, is, is this a case of a guy who's worth $150 million who feels like an asshole because he's not worth a billion? What goes through his head? Like, yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of people like that. And, and it, it's, I think when you get to that level, it's less about, at least for Raj, I don't know about Raja Gupta, but it's more about winning than the actual money. Mm -hmm. Just winning, win everything. I think you you get you get kind of caught up in it and you get just sucked into it, you know. And and so th that one of the most famous things that was in the trial was he was at a, a board meeting when Goldman Sachs decided that they were going to, or, or no, they were getting an infusion from um, Buffett. Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs was oh, right, like a yes. five billion dollar. He makes a call at three fifty five, right? Mm -hmm. Market closes at four. Raj gets the call. They both buy a shitload of Goldman stock. Right. At 402, it hits the tape. And the stock's up like 40. I mean, it can't get any more obvious than, <laughs> than that. You know? I mean. Yeah. So he did he, he was indiscriminate in in the way he went about doing it. Even. Right. Do you think that's because he had been doing it so well? And I, I'm not looking to speculate, nor am I looking to denigrate. I'm just I'm just fascinated by the mentality of these guys that will risk their reputations and their livelihood to right. make, I well, mean, that's the thing. Money. Like, Raj could have been one of the best without cheating. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't need to cheat, mm -hmm. um, which makes it all the more fascinating. But, um, you know, when I got there to Galleon, we're talking 1999, that was the culture, you know, it was a wild West, right. you know, like you, try to get edge right um and there were lots of gray areas you know i wasn't on the street corners paying lawyers with like brown paper bags right right but you know you scratch my back i'll scratch yours right sure. and i got some great calls <laughs> so what would you tell a, a shiny new mba who's making his way to wall street today what kind of advice would you give him you know, or her I, I sort of feel like you know i tell people if if you're passionate about it and you truly love finance, then, you know, it's a great living and it's a great mm -hmm. career. And, you know, you should pursue that. And, you know, obviously you got to continue to check yourself. Like there was a moment when I started making decisions based on consequence versus right and wrong. And that's when things kind of went astray. Mm -hmm. Reflecting back, I would have liked to check in on the whole if then every time, like, what am I doing wrong? If I'm, if I'm never happy, but for a young person, I would say if you're truly passionate about it and you love it, like jump all in and, and, and do it to the best of your ability. If you're there just because you want to make a lot of money, okay, but 
good luck. Right. Like, you know, because everyone on Wall Street has a number, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone has a number that if they hit that number, they're going to retire and leave, right? And I've seen so many people hit that number, but things change, right? Yeah. You know, now they're dating a woman in the intern program and, you know, their three kids want to go to private school and, you know, they want to buy a second house. So that 10 million now becomes 15 million. Right. So no one ever really hits their number, you know, because I always thought I was going to make a ton of money, leave Wall Street, you know, on my own and and do my own thing. And, you know, they call it the golden handcuffs. You know? Right. Attorney, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Any, any advice um, you can give? What should I be doing with my so life? So what I think you should do is make sure that the glass doors are <laughs> open, not closed. I think he needs to put a big Duke sticker on that glass door so that I don't right. fly into it again. Uh, no, you know, somebody did give me some great advice before my first book came out. And, and they said, they're like, Tony, they're like, you know, you're not going to get rich writing a book. Right. right. But... All of these opportunities and, and, and it's going to open your life up in ways that you can, couldn't even imagine. And I didn't really get it at the time. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, since writing my first book, things that I didn't even know existed or opportunities have come my way all because the result of, of writing this book. And But I wrote the book because I needed to write it and mm-hmm. I had to write it and I wanted to write it. And my intentions were pure. Right. It wasn't about making a lot of money. It wasn't about becoming a New York Times bestseller. It was like, I have to write this book. Mm-hmm. And Meaning you had you, you needed to, because you needed to make a living or because no, it was inside it was, of you? It and, was inside of me and I just needed, I mean, I did want to be a writer. Mm-hmm. But it was... It was cathartic. Right, right. And, and the thing that, I, probably the biggest gift I got from writing the book was for the first 40 years of my life, everything was calculated in terms of, okay, how many friends will this make me? How many friends will this lose me? <laughs> right. Like every every move and facet of my life, I calculated risk reward, right? Yeah. And for the first time in my life, I said, you know what? I'm going to tell the truth. People may hate me for it. People may think I'm an awful human being, but I don't care. Right. And what and was the fallout? Strangely, Leading up to the book, I got threatening phone calls, people telling me, if my name's in it, I'll fucking kill you. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, what's your name? Like, you know. So leading up, I was getting a lot of threatening stuff. Right. Um, and I've gotten a ton of hate slung my way. I think my favorite um, comment in the comment section was that even his eyebrows are smug. Um, but <laughs> so Let me look. They're not that smug. The greatest gift I got was, for the first time ever in 40 years, I did something just because I wanted to and it was the right thing to do. Right. And what I learned was I would rather you not like me than for you like to for you to like me and me only show show you a certain aspect or what I wanted you to see. Right. And so, you know, of course I'm still insecure. I still want people to like me. But I don't care as much, yeah. and I don't let it ruin my day. And if you don't like me, it's it's not my fault, right? You know, I'm, unless I was a dick or I did something mm-hmm. rude or impolite. But if if you don't like me and I'm being my normal self, I'm sorry. Yeah, and oddly, that probably draws more people to you because you're just you could give two hells right. about it, right? So 
Hey, man, thank you very much for doing this. I thank appreciate you. it. All right. Best of luck with everything. Appreciate it. Thank See you. ya. So that's my conversation with Tony Duff. I really enjoyed it. And by the way, the reference to the glass door that he made right there at the end, uh, here's the story. We recorded the episode at our mutual friend Jesse's house. Jesse's the guy who, um, who recorded the rap song, the Galleon rap song with him all those years ago. And uh, there's a glass door that I walked into and hit my head really, really hard just minutes before I did the interview with Tony. <laughs> it was so loud. They heard it two floors above the basement where this thing, where this glass door was. I hit it so hard. I thought I broke it. I thought I was broke. And, and I'm almost sure I had a concussion during that entire interview. So I don't know. Maybe I should do that more often because I thought it went pretty well. My mic was a little hot, by the way. Sorry for my laugh being so loud and annoying. We're going to get better at the production of this thing. Hey, folks, if you like what we're doing here, when I say we, I mean we, the royal we, but also me and my partner, Mike Carano, the producer and editor of this fine program. If you like what we're doing here, by all means, go to iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this thing. Give us a rating, as many stars as you can uh, as you can throw us uh, and, and not uh, lose your integrity. Please do that. Write a review. Share it. Subscribe all that kind of good stuff. Also, if you're bored, head on, oh, why don't you open some social media? Because why not? What else are you going to do? Talk to your children? I don't think so. Go to the social media sites like the Twitter and Instagram where you'll find me at at Paul underscore Ollinger. That's O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. On Facebook, I'm slash Paul Ollinger. It's spelled the same way, just without that underscore thing. Don't ask me why it's not all the same thing. It should be, I know. Um, what else? I think that's it. Oh, I have to tell you that when I plug my social media accounts, I am just bubbling over with self-loathing because self-promotion is just, ugh, it's so unflattering. Um, and the only thing worse than hating self-promotion is not hating it. And uh, I just want you to know that I, I hate it. Um, so I want you to have uh, a great day. Hey, wherever you are, have a great day, great night. Whoever you are, do that. All right, how do we end this thing? I think we end it by just turning off the recorder.